All right, well, this week we will continue in our uh, Ephesians uh, series. And beginning this week, we turn a big corner in this book. Because really, if we, if we understand Ephesians well, the first three chapters, Paul lays the foundation of what we need to know, who we are, what God has done for us, what the gospel means. And then chapters 4 through 6, he shows us what that should look like then in life. If this stuff is true, then our lives should reflect it in certain ways. And this is a universal truth. I mean, there, there are things that happen in life that it should be reflected in the way we live. How many of you in here, if a billion dollars were deposited into your account today, would live exactly the same right now, you know, tomorrow as you are right now? Anyone? Good. <laughs> there you go. See, a child is like, yeah, it's... No, we would, we would change, right? I mean, it would be like, yeah, life is different now. And I, I guarantee everyone around us would know that some things have changed in our lives, right? They would know it would be unavoidable, you know? How, how many of you in here would have a new car? You'd have something fast or you'd have something big or you'd have something shiny and you'd be like telling the world, look what I just got. Or how many might have a new house? Or how many of you might close up shop on your job and say, bye, peace out. I will not be in tomorrow. It would show itself because the reality of your life changed in a moment. How much more so should this be the case for those who have accepted the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and been made new? And that's what Paul starts to get into is this week he starts to talk about what I'm going to call the grace walk. Of course, walking in scripture is a metaphor for our lives, for the way we live, for our value system, for the totality of the life that we live. And it should be a walk that is empowered by grace, that reflects grace, that reflects the things of God, that shows the influence and the power of the things of God. Those who are born again in this world should not live like those who aren't. And I'm not just talking about a checklist of right and wrong. I'm not saying that it's, well, you know, this is the bad stuff that you should avoid. And if you're saved, you should never do these things and that's enough. That is such a limited view of the Christian life. It's not just about the evil that we avoid. God wants us walking in power. He wants us walking in victory but it's in a different way. It won't look like the world. It won't act like the world. It won't look like the world. It won't be like the world. And in essence, we should all be very strange in this world. If the world is going one direction, we should be going a different direction. And not always just, you know, a 180 different direction. Sometimes it might be it's going this way and we're going this way. Because God is doing something entirely different. And so look with me this week in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, as we look at the grace walk. And Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what Paul is telling us here at the beginning of this is that the entirety of our life, the the whole purpose that we are now here, after we are born again, and I cannot stress that too much, this is the Christian life. It is impossible, okay? Take note of this. It is impossible for an unsaved person to do what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 through 6. Impossible. It requires the grace of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the forgiveness of God. It requires the Spirit of God. We can't do it alone. He's not saying, hey, you need to try really hard to do these things. He's saying, if these blessings that I've talked about in chapters 1 through 3 are true, this is how they will impact your life and what it will look like when you fully accept that these blessings are true. When you walk in those blessings, it will look like this. And what he tells us to start out is that we need to pursue the higher life. Now, this whole series is called Reaching Higher, but when I say pursue, I mean we need to be active in it. For some reason in our world, and I don't know when this happened or if it's just kind of always been a thing, but we want our faith to be passive. That somehow we're just to, to be here and just receive all these blessings from God and then life will just work. And I hear it all the time from the false teachers of our day. Your breakthrough's coming. Just keep believing your breakthrough's coming. How many of y'all have heard that? What does that even mean? Your breakthrough, you mean God's just going to do everything for you and you don't have to do anything and, and life is just going to be perfect after that? I've always wondered what does that actually mean when they get people all jazzed up with statements like that. Well, Paul begs to differ on that, and he's telling us we need to respond to the grace of God in a manner that is worthy of the grace of God. Now, what's important here is that first we have to realize that God has already granted us far beyond all that we can hope or ask. He's already told us that in Ephesians 3. And so listen again how he starts. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the calling that you've been called to? It is to be a member of the body of Christ and the kingdom of God and to live eternally by faith in the one true Lord Jesus Christ. To be a child of God. And if then that is true, and if we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, remember that from Ephesians 1? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So God has held nothing back from his people. Nothing, nothing that is necessary, nothing that is good. He has not held anything back, everything of eternal value he has blessed us with. And we have to have that difference in mind. We're not talking about worldly value, we're talking about eternal value. Those things that will continue on after this world has been destroyed. 
after this world is gone, what will continue? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And if we have that, if we have been raised up and seated with Christ, isn't that an amazing image as he told us? If we've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, and if we can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, then it is now our responsibility to live in such a way that those blessings are displayed and honored. And it's on us. So I want us to understand this, because this is where it can become dangerous, and we can, we can cross over into legalism unnecessarily, because that's not what Paul is doing, okay? Notice what Paul does here. He does not lay down a list of commands or boxes to check. He didn't say, hey, here's the 12 things you need to do to be blessed. He didn't say that. What did he say? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He's telling us to live up to what God has already done. And here is the difference in legalism and grace. Legalism says you better be good so God will be happy with you. And if you're not good, God's going to be mad at you and punish you. And so we obey out of fear that God might do something bad to us. How many of you have lived that? How many of you got tired of that? How many of you figured out that doesn't work? You know why? Because something bad happened and you're like, but I've been trying, God. You know what? That's not what we're doing. We are not transactional here with God. That's legalism, and legalism always fails. Legalism leaves us empty. It's reliant on our effort and our energy to be blessed. What Ephesians teaches is the exact opposite. It says God acted first. He sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. He blessed you. He forgave you. He opened your eyes. He gave you his spirit. He gave you his word. He has already forgiven you and made you a part of his family, a part of his body, a part of his kingdom. He has already done all of that for you. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. So now that you have everything that you could ever hope or imagine from God, live like it. Huge difference in motivation. We're not earning anything from God. You know what we're doing? We're saying thank you to God for what he has done by our lifestyle. What we do is not going to make the blessings that he has given us any less real. God is not going to withdraw that grace from us because we don't live up to it. We're not earning anything with God. And that's what Paul says. He says, I urge you. Notice he doesn't say, I command you. He says, I urge you. Just just get the right mindset. And you'll walk by grace here and you'll, you'll figure this out. And he says, walk in a manner that is worthy. Because of what God has done, we are now, and y'all really grab this, we are light years beyond rules and laws. We're light years beyond legalism and rules and regulations and checking the box of, is God happy with me today because I did this? Is God happy with me today because I had my quiet time and I read my Bible and and I went to church and I did this, so hopefully God's happy with me today. 
You know what? God is happy with you. You know why? Because he's happy with his son. Because his son lived a perfect, sinless life on your behalf, died in your place, and was raised up to make intercession for you for all eternity. And so our behavior does not dictate God's love for us. Jesus' behavior for us did. And Paul desperately wants us to see that because when we see that, we are free. And so, in order to understand the rest of this book, Ephesians 4 through 6, in order to understand the rest of this book properly, we have to understand that what we are told to do in chapters 4 through 6 is only possible because of the foundation of righteousness given us by Jesus Christ through the gospel. It is a reaction of gratitude. And what is the difference in a reaction of gratitude or trying to earn something? Gratitude says it's already done. It is finished. And I am grateful. And my heart is overflowing because of what you have done for me. And I am now acting out of that overflow because I see the goodness that you have done. Legalism, law, says I must act in order to get. So I'm starting from a place of lack, a place of emptiness, and if I'm good enough, God will give it to me. And God says, that's not how this works. I've already given it to you. You are forgiven. You are my child. I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so we are already made righteous. We've got to get that in our head here. We, we really do. If there's anything in the Christian life that is more freeing, it's understanding we're already righteous. Nothing you do is going to add to your righteousness. You cannot, from this point forward in your life, do anything that's going to make you more righteous. Now, how many of you know that? Know that deeply? You know what? None of us know that. We think we know it. But then we find ourselves running and trying and trying to impress God, and thinking if I just do this, then God will be happy with me. And even if we don't voice it, even if we don't say it out loud, it's something that's deep inside that we just try to, to, to force God to do something if we just act. Whereas when we really believe the fact that we are already righteous, because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, has been laid on us, and we realize I can't make myself any more righteous than Christ already has. Isn't that amazing? I can't make myself any more righteous than Christ already has. You know why? Because what am I going to add to perfect? If Christ was perfect, and he was, he had no sin, and his righteousness is given to us by faith, then nothing I do matters on that front. I will not make myself one bit more righteous in God's eyes. When God looks at us, when he looks at a person who has been born again, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Because he says, your sins I will remember no more. I will separate them from you as far as the east is from the west. Now, when God says, I will remember your sins no more, you need to understand what's going on here. God isn't forgetful. If God can create by speaking something into existence, 
then he can also remove something from existence by doing the same thing. And when he says, your sins I will remember no more, he's saying they're gone. I have made them disappear. And they've disappeared eternally. Anybody ever been forgiven by someone only to have them, you know, bring it up like 10 years later? In 1994... You, you know, and, and it's like, uh, no. No, God isn't ever going to do that. When he says it's over, it's finished, I've forgotten it. He's saying I've taken it literally out of existence. As far as God is concerned, it never happened. He has forgotten it. And so because we are already made new, we are not improving ourselves through our own efforts either. The Christian life is not about self-improvement. Let me say that again. The Christian life is not about self-improvement. It is about glorifying God. And that's a huge difference because when it's about self-improvement, who's at the center of the universe? I am. My life is about me and how good I can become. Well, you know what? How good I can become. You know what the Bible tells me on that? All my righteousness are like filthy rags. I can't. There is nothing I can do to make myself better, to make myself more righteous. There is nothing. The good news is, is I don't have to because Christ did it for me. He gave me his righteousness. And so Paul now comes in, and he's described this, okay? If we really pay attention through Ephesians 1 through 3, he has done everything that I think is humanly possible to get us this elevated view of grace and the gospel and what Jesus did for us. And he's like, pay attention. You, you have the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is bigger than you. This is so much more. And that's why he finishes chapter 3 with what? Now to him who is able to do abundantly beyond, exceedingly far beyond anything we could hope or imagine. He's like, get this bigger picture view. And then he says, so walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You're not earning anything, but he does say there is a standard that God wants us to live up to. And it's not to be accepted. It's to reveal that you actually believe it. That it's actually taken root in your heart. Because the love of God is so radical that there's no way we can walk in the... the, the the light and the power of the Holy Spirit and not be changed. There's no way. We read in the Old Testament, Moses would go spend time with God and he'd come back down off the mountain and what would happen? He was glowing. And people were like, dude, that's weird. Cover up. It's scaring me. And they would ask him to wear a veil over his face because it, it, the, the glory of God was all around him. We cannot have these encounters with God and go unchanged. And so that's what Paul is like, just pursue this higher life. Because here's the truth. We will never be worthy of grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. It would be a wage. It would be something we earned. It would be by works. We will never be worthy of grace, but we can respond to grace in a manner that is worthy of grace. Our response to grace does matter. When we receive the things of God, how do we respond? This is our calling in life. It is what is meant when we say that we are to glorify God in all that we do. 
It is the key to a successful Christian life, and it is a life of gratitude. Why do you think so many times in the New Testament it tells us give thanks? Give thanks, give thanks. Even in the Old Testament, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Because when we start paying attention to what God has really done for us, it's going to dwarf anything that we could look at and say, oh, yeah, I'm lacking. God has blessed us. And so this is why the gospel is so very important even after we are saved. We never move beyond it. The gospel, Jesus Christ, will always be the source of life that we have to return to. And that same faith that saved us is the same faith that will grow us, is the same faith that's going to get us through judgment day, is the same faith that's going to be celebrated when we've been there 10,000 years. Same faith. It will never change. Faith in Christ, in Jesus as Lord, will be the center point and linchpin of the response of gratitude for all eternity. And so he's saying, just live a life that reflects that. And so we have to ask, what is worthy of the calling we have received? See, the word Paul uses here means to balance the scale. I love that. It's the idea of balancing the scale. So what has grace done for us? And he's saying, now your response to this should be an effort to balance that scale. Now, will it ever balance? No. No. But he's saying, try. Try. Now, now here's the great thing. When God says try, don't you think there's a reason? Is it because he wants to be mad at us if we fail? No. He's saying, if you try, I promise it's going to be worth it. I'm waiting for you. I've got stuff for you. I've got blessings for you. I have experiences for you. I have a knowledge of the eternal and the holy for you that I want you to walk in. So just, just take that step. I'm going to part the Red Sea for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to provide manna for you. But I need you to walk out into that desert. I need you to take the steps of faith. And when you take them, I will be there. And I will bless it. But Paul actually discusses this in a different manner, too, in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's saying, your life, it's not appropriate now. Sin, it shouldn't have a place in your life that, that fits comfortably. Now, if anybody claims to be without sin, as 1 John says, is lying. Truth isn't in him. We all struggle in various ways. But sin should not be comfortable. We should know when we step out of God's will, it should bother us. It'll be something that's like, ah, oh, this doesn't fit. This isn't who I am. This isn't right. This doesn't, this doesn't work in my life anymore. And I know some of you can testify to that. You can look back on your life and say, you know, there was a time where, man, this sin, it just fit in my life. And then I came to know Christ, and it stopped fitting. It just didn't work anymore. And it wasn't that, you know, you were afraid that God was mad at you. It's that that's not who I am anymore. God has changed my heart and my desires have changed. And who I want to be and what I am pursuing, the higher life that I'm pursuing, that has no place. It has no place in it. And it's just dragging me down and I want nothing to do with it. And so we have to ask ourselves now, if our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our appropriate responses, our worthy responses to the grace and eternal standing we have been given through Jesus Christ. That's what we ask. 
Instead of asking, is this sin and can I get away with it? You know, is, is, I've talked about, you know, youth will ask that question. The adults just ignore it many times. You know, hey, is this sin? Hey, how far is too far? You know, what's the, we're asking the wrong questions. What we ask is, is this worthy of grace? Is this a reflection of the love and sacrifice that Jesus made? Can I do this to the glory of God? Well, that clears all kinds of things up in a hurry. Yeah, there's a lot that we can do in this life to the glory of God. Can we be married to the glory of God? Yeah, Paul thinks so. That's why he gives us what he gives us in Ephesians 5 and 6. Talking about the family. He says it should be like this. This is what it will look like in a grace-based family and household. What about work relationships? Can we, can we work to the glory of God and have relationships with subordinates and superiors? Yes, we can. We can glorify God in that. And, and so what we have to do now, and this is what the rest of Ephesians 4 through 6 is about, is that we've got to follow the blueprint. we just got to follow the blueprint. God lays it out for us, like here's what this is going to look like. Now, he doesn't give us every answer to every possible situation we could face because that book would be endless. Why? Because humanity creates ways to do evil, and so God would constantly be adding to Scripture. But what he does is he gives us the foundation that says, you know what, if you'll draw from this foundation, there is nothing that life can't throw at you that you won't have a faith response for. You may not have every answer in every moment, but you will have an appropriate faith response that will lead you to me, and I will get you through it. And we just have to follow the blueprint. And so what does he give us? He gives us a foundation here that's so easy to just read through and not really pay attention to it. But what I'm going to show you, not just this week, but for the rest, what he gives us right here in verses 2 and 3, you will see that they will apply to everything else that he lists out for the rest of Ephesians 4 through 6. This is a foundation right here that will always be at play in every situation of the Christian life that you could ever face. Any situation, any place, any time, anywhere, doesn't matter. These will always be a part of the Christian life and need to be pursued. What is it? He says, so he tells us to live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Doesn't that seem simple? I mean, if you're looking for the keys to life, didn't you think it would be a little more complex than that? That it would require a little more work? Remember, this is impossible without Christ. Don't take lightly what he just said here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, sacrifice, love, and unity by the Spirit, which results in peace. Everything Paul just listed involves what? Relationships. Notice what's out of the picture immediately here is the Lone Ranger Christian. Is the person that I can just do it on my own. If you can, then it better be benefiting somebody else too, which means you're not doing it on your own. It all involves relationship, community, and 
involvement in the kingdom of God. This is not an individualistic pursuit. The Christian life is not primarily an individualistic pursuit. Your faith is an individual faith. Nobody can do it for you. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. You must be born again. You, mu you cannot live on your parents' or your grandparents' faith. You cannot live on the faith of your community or the faith of your church. Your faith must be your own. But the Christian life is shared. Once you are saved, you are called into Christian community. And there is no getting away from that. To reject Christian community as a Christian is to be in sin. Why? Because we can't have humility and gentleness isolated from everybody else. We cannot have patience and bear with another in love in isolation. You see, the first thing he tells us here is that your life is no longer just about you. It's about the kingdom of God. And so our inner being is being renewed so that our outer lives reveal his kingdom. Let me say that again. Our inner being is being renewed so that our outer lives reveal his kingdom. So let's dive into what Paul is describing here really quickly, okay? Because these are more than words or desirable traits. These are the blueprint for a successful and effective Christian life. Humility and gentleness. Now let's just look at the opposite of that, okay? Pride, pr proud and abrasive. How many of us like that? See, it's amazing when we look at the opposite, we're like, ooh, no. No, proud and abrasive, that's bad. I don't like that. Okay, so what's the opposite? Being humble and gentle. Now look at our world right now. Is our world humble and gentle or is it proud and abrasive? I would say pride and being abrasive are the order of the day. So what is God saying? He's saying you need to be different. Your response to life should reflect the grace that you've been given, and that happens with humility and gentleness. Now also, here's a, a truth. Faith and gratitude are impossible without humility. Did you know that? They're impossible. We cannot be proud and full of self and have faith in God that is effective at the same time. And that's why Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself. It's the first step. It's just what we have to do. We cannot be prideful and, and, and abrasive in following God in faith and, and obedience at the same time. It, 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 they just can't coexist. They're oil and water. And so faith requires us to believe God is who he says he is, and gratitude requires us to see the truth of God's goodness and love for us. The gospel requires us to be humble because we are commanded to have the same mindset as Christ did. And what was the mindset of Jesus Christ? In Ephesians 2, 5 through 8, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Talking about Jesus, it says, But emptied himself. What is that? Humility. Sacrifice. By taking the form of a servant. Humility. Being born in the likeness of man. God becoming man is humility. <laughs> That is the quintessence of humility. There is no greater thing. Okay, we can literally use the word correctly and say God condescended to our level and became human. 
And, and that condescension was not, it, it was done in love, but it was genuinely a condescension. It says, by taking the form of a servant, so he didn't come to earth and amass power for himself, he was a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ's entire life was one of being humble and then being humbled further and then being humbled even more until it finally killed him. And we are to have that same mind in us. Humility and gentleness must be the order of the day for every Christian in every place and every time. Now, humility and gentleness do not mean weakness. Was Jesus weak in any way? No. The strength he had would go beyond anything we would call strength today. Well beyond. He resisted sin. He resisted hate. He resisted everything that is horrible about this world. He stood in direct opposition to it and he called it out. He was not weak, but he was humble and gentle. Do not equate gentleness with weakness. They are not the same thing. Then he says, bearing with one another in love. I just have to laugh at this. I can't help it. That as part of the foundation of the entire Christian life, he says, hey, you're going to have to put up with each other. You're going to have to bear with each other in love. Paul knows this. He's like, I know what people are like. I know what I'm like. And we just got to get over it and put up with each other. Now, that again does not mean sweeping sin under the rug or, or, or intolerating things that shouldn't be tolerated. But he does say, look, we're not going to be this homogenous group where everybody's always the same and agrees on everything. We have to bear with each other in love. We, we have to be willing to bear with one another through differences, through frustrations, through mistakes, and even through failures. This is a patience that brings with it the acknowledgement that difficulty in relationships will be a real thing. Does anybody have a perfect relationship that you've never had to weather a storm? Any marriages out there like that? That was nice. No, you got to work, right? We got to bear with each other. We, we have to. It's just, it requires this effort. But is the effort worth it? Yes. It's always worth it. And so who better to model this for us than Jesus himself? He was without sin in a sinful world. And you know what? Jesus didn't just tolerate people. You ever been around people, you just tolerate people and that's it? That's why he doesn't just say bear with one another. He says bear with one another in love. <laughs> That love part is important there at the end. Jesus didn't just tolerate humanity. He's like, ah, oh, I cannot stand these people. He made time. He loved them right where they were. He showed them the truth. He called them to repentance. He gave some people the hard truth, and they turned away from him and refused to accept it, and he let them go. But he bore with them in love. He didn't just tolerate people while inwardly hating them. He loved them. He answered their failures with forgiveness, love, and guidance. And if we are to bear with one another in love, we have to give up. And this is important. We have to give up fault-finding, gossip, and complaining about people. Because let me tell you, it's easy to find something wrong with someone else, isn't it? 
I mean, it's easy. I can, I, I can complain about everybody in here if I wanted. Would it get me anywhere? No. Wouldn't do any good. Wouldn't do any good. He says, bear with one another in love. And then he says, because we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager. Okay, the word Greek means to make haste to do something. It means our gut reaction. Our first thing is to try to preserve our Christian brotherhood friendships and relationships with each other. Not to, to push people away, but to try to bring them near and maintain that relationship. And we have to see, are we eager to do that? Are we eager to maintain that unity? Or, as Proverbs sixteen twenty eight says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Which one is it? Stay in a church long enough, you'll know the difference. You will know the difference. There are the peacemakers and there are the division bringers. And you know what? You're a division bringer? I'm not interested. Fault finding? Not interested. Growth and grace and friendship and love? Yes. Bearing with one another love? Yes. Helping each other forward, which means accountability sometimes. Hey, you're out of line. Okay. Well, let's go to the Lord and fix it. And so what we do, this is the blueprint for a successful and effective Christian life. And it will never change. There's never a situation in which this blueprint changes. There is never a time, there is no culture, there is no place that this will ever be different. And so what do we do with that? We just build on the foundation. Okay, we, we build in the foundation. Because he tells us now, this is our focus. We have the blueprint. What is our focus? He says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You think Paul's trying to make a point? He's telling us, look, we should be focused in one place. There, there's nothing else. There's nothing. We don't need to bring it in. We don't need to do anything else. And even if we disagree... We can still love each other. Did y'all know that's possible? I know for Southern Baptists sometimes that's hard to imagine. But we can disagree and still love each other. Because you know what we'll never disagree on is who Jesus is. We will never disagree on his sacrifice. We will never disagree on, on his grace. and what it, We will never disagree on the gospel. And that is what should unite us above all else. And so even if we have a disagreement... And I was going to read this for you, but we're out of time, so I'm just going to tell you the story. In Acts 15, 36 through 41, we had Paul and Barnabas. They were ministering together. They had a sharp disagreement, and you know what ended up happening? They went separate ways. But you know what they both continued to do? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with joy. They didn't bad talk each other. They, they, they just decided, look, we disagree on this so much, we're just going to part ways. No problem. And you know what the church got out of that? Two missionaries out serving God. Instead of one missionary team, you had two teams now. Sometimes God changes the board on things, and it's okay. So long as we stay focused on the one faith, the one gospel, the, the one Lord, the one baptism, the one God, and we keep that focus, and we build on the foundation he's given us, it'll work. And it will always work. And this is the grace walk. This is the life that, that whatever we do, whatever we choose, whatever we do as far as work or, or hobbies or whatever, if we will focus on the walk that, that reflects grace, 
then God will be glorified and we will unite with his people and we will have an effective Christian faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for this this time. And God, I pray that you would help us all, Lord, to, to meditate upon what it means to be humble and gentle, to bear with one another in love, to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. God, that we wouldn't see these as as goals to be attained, but just as a life to be lived, as a reflection of the truth of who you are and what you have done. God, that we would see them as the blessings themselves, not a means to blessing, but the blessings themselves, that we would celebrate who you are and what you have done. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.